Well, what's the point of church? I think if you went out into Percival, maybe the Main Street area there, and just caught a few people walking and enjoying this nice Sunday morning, you would get probably a lot of different answers to that question. What is the point of church? Maybe some folks would see church as kind of like a social club, right? Like, like going to the Rotary or being part of yoga. You know, church is a good way to, to find community with other people that you might not otherwise know and share life with them, learn something along the way. Or maybe someone wouldn't necessarily put it this way, but church really kind of operates like a provider of religious goods and services. So you go to the supermarket for food and drink. You go to Nichols for hardware and tools. You go to church for kids' programs and maybe some spiritual insight on the side, right? Another way I think a lot of folks might think about church, including Christians, is that's a way to get on God's good side. You know, if, if it's true then that he exists and that he cares about the way we live, well, then it seems like there's no harm in, in going to church every once in a while, right? I mean, if we, if we do that, if we try to do more good things than bad things, well, then God should be pleased with us and maybe we'll live a happier and more blessed life because of that. Then again, maybe it's not any of those things. Maybe, maybe some of us just have grown up doing this. So when we were young and in our parents' home, they just made us do it, and now we've kind of kept up the pattern. Saturday mornings are for mowing the lawn. Sunday mornings are for going to church and football. That's coming up, by the way. Well, as we embark on this adventure of starting Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, we're going to spend the next 15 weeks studying through a book of the Bible that answers that question, what's the point of church? What is its purpose? What's it good for? And so if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me towards the end of, the, of uh, the book to the New Testament book of Ephesians. Now, if you're a visitor uh, with us, which is, again, many of you, uh, let me just say again, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. This is a great joy for us. And if you're a little intimidated by spending the next 15 weeks going through a book, that's great. I am too, actually. <laughs> but just so you know, we're kind of on the same page. That's the way we hope to, to, to have our services run here at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. So uh, instead of taking a, a topic, maybe parenting or, or work, and then going to, to Scripture and trying to figure out what all of Scripture says about that topic that might be of interest to us, uh, we plan, plan instead to go here first to go to a book of the Bible first and work through it systematically to see what the Lord might have us think about that we might not otherwise think to think about. Uh, and studying the scriptures by, by topic is a great thing to do. So we hope to do that from time to time. But just so you know, the regular diet of our church is going to be looking at a book of the Bible and working through it little by little. So as we start off this church in the book of Ephesians, we hope to wrap that up in December. Uh, just in time to spend some time taking a break and thinking about some passages that relate to the birth of Christ. So with that said, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians if you haven't already. If, you, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, um, we have paperback Bibles on the Connect table outside. So on the way out, if you don't have a Bible at home that you regularly read, just pick one up. Uh, that's our gift to you. We'd love to give you a copy of God's Word. Now Ephesians is a letter written by a man named Paul. So Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. 
And Ephesians is a letter comprised of six chapters. And those six chapters are pretty easily divided into two major parts. So the first three chapters focus on what it means to be a Christian. And the last three chapters focus on what it means to live as a Christian. And I pray that as we dig into this book for these next three and a half months, that we will grow in understanding both of those things. What it means to follow Jesus and why he's given us the community of the church to live as Christians. So, Ephesians, we're going to read the first two verses this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I like to open the mail. I'm usually the first one uh, to get to our mailbox at home. I'm, my ears are well attuned to the sound of the brakes of the mail truck. I just love getting mail. It makes me feel important. Uh, I enjoy kind of fingering through the, the envelopes and seeing if there's anything out of the ordinary, anything special. And as we all know, there's, there's kind of a lot of things that we look for when we look at the mail. When we look at the letter, we expect to see who it's coming from, who it's addressed to. Maybe it's the people that used to own the house, which has happened a lot. Uh, And then we open it and we see, okay, how's it addressed to me? Whether that's, hello, friend, or to whom it may concern, or dear, valued customer. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, those those are three important elements of every letter. And Paul's letter here is no different. So in these verses we've just read, we see an author... We see some recipients of folks that are getting this letter, and then we see a greeting. And so that's what we're going to consider together this morning. So we're starting a Baptist church, after all. If you're at all familiar with Baptist churches, you need three points in the sermon. So we're starting off well. we got three points. The author, the recipients, and the greeting. Okay? That's where we're going this morning. So first, the author. If you look there in verse 1, you'll see that Paul begins by identifying himself as the one who's writing this letter. And he says that he's Paul, and then he calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. So that word apostle is is Paul's job title. And it means he's been commissioned. He's been sent to communicate this letter. I think that's easy to skip over, but something really important for us to remember this morning So these words were written by Paul. They kind of bear his style, the way we would expect him to to write. Ultimately, these are not the words of Paul. He's not speaking on his own authority here. These aren't his particular ideas that he's trying to persuade us of. No, he says he's an apostle. He bears the authority of someone greater. And so at the outset of this letter, by saying that, he's he's kind of saying Okay, folks, listen to these words right here. Not because you know me. Not because you might trust me. Because God has appointed me to send them to you. These are ultimately the very words of God. And Paul makes that even more clear in the next phrase, right? What does he say? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, what? By the will of God. And if you know Paul's backstory at all, you'll understand why he makes a big deal about that phrase. Because it was only the will of God that could have made an apostle out of Paul. You see, way before Paul was writing these big chunks of the New Testament, 
way before he was this famous teacher of the first century church. Paul was a persecutor of Christians, a ferocious extremist who wanted to eradicate followers of Christ. So if you go back maybe later this afternoon and look at uh, some of the chapters in the, the middle of the book of Acts, you'll see that Paul had some radical hatred for the church. So in Acts chapter 7, we see him standing by in full support and aiding folks who were stoning the first Christian martyr to death. In Acts chapter 8, we see Paul in a crazed pursuit to destroy the church, traveling from house to house, systematically dragging away Christian men and women, putting them in prison. In Acts chapter 9, we see him, quote, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's almost that sense of like, this is what he did as he breathed in and out. I want to put Christians to death. He's determined. And so Acts chapter 9 finds him asking permission to hit up another town, to bring Christians back to Jerusalem in chains. So reading about that Paul, he was called Saul at the time, we get some pretty clear picture, right? This guy was on a mission. He, was, he had a, he a one-track mind, hell-bent on wiping out Christianity. So consider, consider that Paul, right? And now think about this Paul, who's writing Ephesians. What in the world happened? What could have changed that Paul to, to this one? What could have changed a murderous terrorist to a courageous preacher of grace and peace? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't he? God's will happened to him. In Acts chapter 9, Paul is on his way to Damascus to bring more destruction on the church when Jesus stops him in his tracks. A bright light stuns him and drops him to the ground and he hears these words, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. You see, Paul was all about seizing and imprisoning Christians, but here it's Jesus who arrests Paul, right? He halts him in his mission and gives him another mission. And after that, things would never be the same for him. So by the will of God, Jesus took his great enemy and made him his apostle. His chosen instrument, was the words of Jesus in Acts. His chosen instrument to carry his name to the world. I don't think Paul ever got over that. I don't think he ever got over this amazing transformation terrorist to missionary, the persecutor to the persecuted. So as he begins this letter, he calls himself an apostle, yes. One commissioned by God, yes, but only because of this will of God. Only because of this gracious, sovereign love. So friends, I think we should pause. This is a reminder for us. God And his will cannot be disrupted. He's unstoppable. When God sets his saving purpose on a sinner and calls him out of darkness, the sinner cannot say no. God always wins. Christian, when was the last time you thought back on how you came to know Christ? 
on how God in his mercy and by his will calls you to himself. One of the greatest joys that the core group, 30 of us, have had over the past four or five months is hearing one another's testimonies. Hearing how God had mercy on us and saved us. What amazing grace God has had on us, brothers and sisters. And we can sing along with that song we sang earlier, right? As I ran my hell-bound, ra- hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Christian, isn't that wonderful news this morning? God's grace has found you and changed you like it did Paul. And so Christian, I wonder if you come discouraged in your faith this morning. I wonder if you come weary and weighed down. I wonder if there are patterns of anxiety or lust that you feel you cannot escape. I wonder if there are painful relationships that have just seemed to get worse. And so you come to church this morning distracted and fearful and worried. So Christian, if, if, if that's you this morning, I'd encourage you. Think back to how you came to Christ. Ask someone else this morning at the picnic later how they became a Christian and then share with them your story and let's rejoice together in this merciful love of God that has conquered our sin and set us free in Christ. None of us could ever have hoped to love God had he not loved us first. Well, there's one more thing here I think we should consider before we move on and that is Paul calls himself an apostle, one sent to communicate God's truth to God's people. And in doing so, he's reminding us that these words in Ephesians carry with them the very weight and authority of God himself. So the creator of everything has here communicated with us. Friends, that means we need to pay attention to these words. This is really important for us to remember as we set off on this church plant, I think. And as we consider this book over the next 15 weeks, yes, they're written by Paul. Yes, they're inspired by the very Spirit of God. And if those two things are true, then they contain truth for us without any mixture of error or falsehood. So let's hear that, church. We're we're a young church. (laughs) We're a couple hours old, maybe an hour old. And as we want to see this church grow and become established, we're going to start asking questions. Maybe not vocally, but we're going to start thinking, how can we make this happen? So how can we reach out? How can we grow this number so that we eventually can move into the main hall, right? The auditorium. Friends, as we think about growing as a church, as we think about maturing in Christ, and by God's will, multiplying, this is the answer. It's the word of God. It will never be our programs. It will never be great facilities. We don't even have those yet, right? It will never be entertainment or youth ministry or the best music in town. No, the way, the only way we will grow in spiritual health and maturity at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church is if we root our lives together in this, in God's word, in the truth about who he is, why he created us, why Jesus had to come, what it means to be saved from sin. The moment we stray from that is the moment we fail as a church. 
So let us never forget, Loudoun Valley Baptist Church will only be successful insofar as we cling to the Bible, hearing it regularly, responding to it with humility, with repentance, with faith. So to the 30 of you who signed our membership covenant last night and created this church, let me just say to you that in the coming months, you may get discouraged. Our numbers may wane. Friends may come visit and then not return. Our kids' ministry could lack volunteers. Our setup team could get kind of worn out. But church, our hope is not in those things. If we didn't have any microphones this morning, we'd be okay. All right? Only God's word will create God's people. That's why we plan to put such a priority on the reading and preaching of God's word. That's why we plan to spend the bulk of our time on Sunday mornings listening to me speak or some other preacher speak about God's word. That's why our services look kind of like conversations with God as we hear from his word and respond to him in prayer and singing. Only as we submit our lives to this will we have success. And allow me a quick minute to apply this a bit more personally for us all, okay? Because not only are we a young church, but I'm a young pastor. Folks, I'm 28 years old. I've preached five dozen sermons in my life. Many of you are older than me. You're wiser than me. You've experienced so much more in life than me. So an honest question, I think, should be, why should you listen to me? I mean, what gives me the authority to stand up here and speak to you about your life, about the trials you're going through or the relationship struggles you have? Friends, the only reason you should be listening to me is, not, is because I'm not teaching you my ideas, Lord willing. I'm not preaching to you my newest strategies for healthy parenting or a good marriage or the best way to set up your financial plan. I'm only here to try and present to you the word of God. Try and understand these words and apply them to us so that we can be changed, not by what I say, but what the Holy Spirit says through the written word of God. So pray for me. Pray that I would remain faithful to this. Pray that I would not fear your approval or crave your praise and adjust my message accordingly. Pray that I would always and only seek to preach the Bible. Let's move on. We've seen that Paul is the author of this letter, but who are the recipients? Who's this letter, who's the two-line addressed to? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So the first thing we see here about who Paul is writing to is that they are saints, What does that mean? So are they super pious? Are they holy? Are they better than other Christians? Maybe in Philippi? Well, that's kind of the way we think about this word in our culture, right? We talk about certain people who are extra kind, extra generous, and we're just like, well, Debbie, she's a saint, right? She's on a different level. Even more seriously, our our Roman Catholic friends have kind of an official definition of what a saint is, right? And they promote certain people to sainthood after they die. Both of those things, not really what Paul's talking about here. So Paul is using this word saint, and this is what it means. A saint is one who has been set apart 
and devoted to God. One who has been set apart and devoted to God. So fundamentally, Paul is not talking about someone who's kind of reached a higher strata of holiness. Though we are called to be holy and to grow in holiness. Now Paul's talking about someone who has been changed, who has had something happen to him, who has been chosen and designated and set apart to belong to God. And so in this way, Paul calls every Christian a saint. So every Christian is someone who has been called out from sin and separated from the world, which is in rebellion against God, and has been set apart for God's purposes. So if you think back to the Old Testament, you'll think about how the priests consecrated certain vessels in the temple so that they'd be used for holy use, not just normal use, but holy use. These things were used to praise God. And that's the same idea we're talking about in, saint, in sainthood, if you want to call it that. We have now been separated and given a holy purpose. We have been saved, called out to worship and become more like Jesus. So Christian brothers and sisters this morning, you're saints. You've been shown mercy by God because you stopped looking for salvation elsewhere. He's set his love on you and now you look to Christ for everything you need. Now maybe you're here this morning and you don't really identify as a Christian or you're still thinking about it. And really, this just sounds weird. I, I want you just to understand that we in no way think of ourselves as better than you. So we look at our hearts as Christians and we see lots of bad things. We see lying, hatred, bigotry, lust, greed, all there. In fact, we are the worst of sinners. And yet we are saints because God has had mercy on us. You sang that song earlier, Nothing That My Hands Can Do. And the purpose of singing that was to remind ourselves that there's literally nothing in our own strength that we can do to please God, to make him love us, to, to make him show kindness to us. Now it's actually quite the opposite. You see, God created each one of us in his image, able to think, able to reason, able to worship. And when he created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, he created them perfect in that state. He called them very good. They were perfectly happy. They were content. They lived under his authority and for his praise. That's why we were made as well, to bring praise and glory to the one who created us. That's where we'll find true peace, true joy, true rest. God designed us that way, to find in him our greatest fulfillment. But instead of doing that, instead of pursuing him, instead of loving him, each of us, you and me, have turned in on ourselves. And we've replaced God with us. We've made ourselves God. We've made ourselves an object of love and worship. We promoted ourselves and loved ourselves and served ourselves. And when that doesn't pan out and we're disappointed in us, well, then we turn to other things to try and fill up this longing we have for meaning in our hearts. Everything we try just never satisfies us. And think about what we look to for meaning, for satisfaction in our lives. Maybe it's our work schedule, how busy we are. 
And just packing out our life with events just helps us feel worth and fulfillment, right? Maybe it's our kids. I mean, we figure that if we just invest enough time in them and ensure that they grow up to make us proud, then we'll be content. Then life will make sense. Maybe it's pleasure. You know, life is full of ways to feel good, whether that's sex or food or drink. And so when we feel useless, we, we go to those things to feel loved, to feel needed. Maybe it's success. You know, we've made it through college. We, we went to grad school. We got the job we always wanted. Now we're happy. Now life will be all we wanted it to be. Now, friends, those two things are all good things. God created work. He created children and sex and food and success but he didn't design them to fulfill our greatest need, the satisfaction that we crave. They'll never do that fully. They'll always end up disappointing us. Only God is worthy of our worship, and only he can give us true satisfaction. Outside of him, the search for meaning is futile. It's a, it's a dead-end road. And as we try to pursue it and reject him, well, that's, that's what the Bible calls sin. We have set ourselves up against God and made us his enemies. And friends, that's not a good situation because God is a good and faithful God. And being good and faithful, he cannot condone our sin. He cannot turn a blind eye to it. Otherwise, he would be less than good. He would be unjust. So what must a good God do when confronted with sin? He'll need to hand down punishment, won't he? And that's what God has done. He's promised to punish us for our sin. And that punishment is death, separation from his love forever. There's nothing we can do to kind of make that relationship right again. We're done. We're finished. But friends, the best news in the world, the reason we even thought about planting a church, is that God is not only perfectly just, but he's perfectly merciful. And so even though we would have been, or he would have been completely fair to just let us be punished, he reached out to us, his enemies. And he reached out not with a, a gavel of, of judgment, but with a heart full of love. When we could not save ourselves, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, that, that life that you and I were meant to live but chose not to. But instead of a reward for his perfect life, Jesus took on himself all of the sin, all the rebellion of those who would ever trust in him. And he gave himself as a bearer of God's judgment in our place. Jesus died on the cross for us. That was our punishment, but he took it. And so the gavel of judgment fell not on us, but on God himself. The judge gave himself up for those he had condemned. And three days later, Jesus, after dying, rose again, as if to say, that work is done. I have conquered your death. I have forgiven your sins. And so this great transaction has now taken, taken place. If we trust in Christ, if we turn from our sin, all our sin will be placed on him and all his perfection will be given to us. We who were once God's enemies will be made his family members. 
his adopted children. That's what it means to be a saint, to be delivered from sin and set apart for God. So friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the best news we could ever offer you. This is the news we want to share every morning at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. In your sin, you're justly deserving of God's judgment. But hear this, there's hope. Jesus has been judged. If you will repent and turn to him, your sin will be placed on the cross. Turn your back on lesser things that you're looking for for satisfaction. Go to him. You'll find true joy, true meaning, all because of God's grace. If you have any questions about that, we'd love to talk to you more about that. You can talk to me or you can talk to anybody else that you saw standing up here or um, talk to this person sitting next to you. We'd love to talk to you about how you can know Jesus and have your sin wiped away. Well, Paul continues on and he calls these saints in Ephesus and the surrounding regions. So this letter was probably written not just to Ephesus, but to a kind of a, a circuit of churches in the area. And he calls them all those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So not necessarily those who are trustworthy or dependable. That's what we usually think about like with the word faithful. But actually those who are full of faith, those who are believing, those who are trusting in Jesus. And here, we get to one of the most amazing and basic truths of Christianity. It's what we've entitled this sermon series in Ephesians. It's something that, Lord willing, we'll talk about more and more in these coming weeks. And this is it. We are in Christ. Our position as Christians is in Christ. You see that there? We are the faithful. Then what? In Christ Jesus. If you scan down the rest of the chapter, you'll see that phrase repeated over and over again. In Christ, in him, in the beloved. All God's blessings come to us. Where? How? In Christ. So Paul sees that every good thing we can experience as Christians is because we are united to Jesus. We're part of him. He has joined us to himself. And so what is true about Jesus and the way that he stands before God is now true of everyone who is united to him in faith. This is a bit of a hard thing to grasp. So I'm looking forward to working on it and through it with you all. But it's incredibly important to try to understand this as Christians. So in another letter that Paul wrote, this time to the church in Rome, uh, he talked about how every person who is born is what he calls in Adam. So remember we talked about Adam before. Adam was the first man who was made perfect to please God and then fell into sin. So Adam, as a first man, has sort of this line of descendants following after him. If you can think, he's at the top of the list and all these people come after him. And as part of his lineage, they share with him in this rebellious state that he occupies before God. So being in Adam means being God's enemy. We come from Adam, and each of us has been born that way. So Paul says it this way. He says, sin came into the world through one man. He's talking about Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. So that's, that's who we are in sin. We're united to Adam, and his sin problem is our sin problem. We are born sinners. We've chosen to turn our back on God. But then Paul, in Romans, writes these words. It's just a little bit afterwards. He says, and one trespass, that's Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men. So everybody who's in Christ in this list is condemned. 
And as that happens, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So Paul's creating a new list. He's talking about in Adam, and now there's a new list in Christ. And just as Adam's sin influences and affects everyone who comes from his line, now we can be transferred to the line of Christ. We can be made in Christ so that Christ's righteousness becomes ours. The great preacher from Wales in the mid-1900s, Martin Lloyd-Jones, puts it this way. Being united to Christ means that all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done becomes true of us. When Christ was crucified, we were crucified with him. When he died, we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried with him. When he rose again, we rose with him. Friends, Jesus did all the things we could never have done, and now he invites us to participate in those things just like we had actually done them. If that seems deep and a bit confusing, don't worry. We're going to hash it out more. But in the meantime, be assured, Christian, this is the most important thing about you. Your identity was in Adam. You were under God's judgment. Because God has had mercy on you, you're in Christ. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. So as we go through Ephesians, Paul doesn't pretend to understand all this either. And he wants us to understand it even more clearly. So like a good preacher, he's going to use illustrations over and over again. So in chapter 2, he's going to talk about a building. He'll talk about how the cornerstone is Jesus. And everything built up is the church. And you and I, as Christians, are stones that build up that building. We would not be able to be there had it, were it not for the foundation, which is Christ. In chapter 4, he'll use the illustration of a body. He'll call us all different parts of the same body. Jesus is the head. From him flows life to every one of us. In chapter 6, he'll use the illustration of marriage. And how Jesus has drawn us close to him as his wife and married us. And now, since we're his wife... All his riches and status are ours. Church, this is a gospel we celebrate. We could never have saved ourselves, but now we are joined to Christ. and Everything that's his is ours. We are acceptable to God. We are perfect in his sight. And so our final point this morning follows naturally. So after thinking about these amazing truths, look at Paul's greeting there in verse 2. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a standard greeting from Paul. So he uses it in other letters in the New Testament. But here, this greeting functions as kind of a snapshot for what the rest of the letter will show us. If we're saints, if we're believers in Christ, God has shown us mercy and given us peace. Both vertically with him and horizontally with the church. And so this greeting is kind of like one of those sneak peeks you look at for an upcoming movie. Not quite sure what it's going to look like, but this gives you a little bit of the main themes that you can watch for. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like a, it's like a taste of what's in store for us in this book. So throughout the remaining six chapters, Paul will flesh out what it means to receive grace and peace. And he'll show in Christ that God has shown us amazing grace, favor without anything in us deserving it. 
When we could never reach up to him in our sin, he came down to us and gave himself for us. And Paul will go on to show that God's grace isn't on a budget. You know, it doesn't have supply problems. So later he'll talk about the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Think about that. I mean, we love to put measurements on things. That's how we... That's how we gauge the status of things. I mean, if you've watched the Olympics over the past three weeks, you'll have seen so many different ways to measure things, right? The length of a race, the weight of a wrestler, the split-second differential at the end of a sprint. Friends, God's grace frustrates any measurement we could put on it. It's above our wildest dreams. It's, it's beyond our comprehension. I mean, if you take a pen, you can do this later, and you go through the rest of chapter 1 all the way up to verse 14, and you circle all the verbs, you'll see that most of the active verbs belong to God, while all the passive verbs belong to us. That's grace. God acting on undeserving sinners, giving them new life through his son, reconciling them to himself, making his enemies his friends, bringing peace to his people. That's the second part of the greeting, right? Peace. Paul will go on to say that Jesus himself is our peace. This is a different kind of peace than I think we usually talk about when we talk about peace. We usually think about peace as a, a feeling or a decrease in conflict or anxiety. You know, a good night away from the kids in front of the TV. Peace. Peace is momentary calm. But this peace we have in Christ is not just a ceasefire. It's a full restoration of relationship. Because of what Jesus has done, we are reconciled to God. We're his children. And Paul will go on to show that what that means is that we're reconciled to one another. Being united to Christ means being united to his body, the church. We're different parts, yes, but we belong to the same body. We're different blocks, yes, but we belong to the same building. We're different branches, yes, but we belong to the same tree. And so the peace we have with God shows itself to be true in our lives by the peace we have with each other. So what's the point of church? The church is not a social club. It's not a provider of religious goods and services. It's not a way to make God happy with us. The point of church is that it is the body of those who are in Christ. And we have the wonderful job of making Jesus visible to the world. The church is the community of those who are joined to Christ, in Christ. The church is the family of those who have been adopted as God's children, who can call him father like Paul does right here in verse 2. The church is a gathering of those who have been reconciled to God and given peace to one another. And so as we embark on this journey of starting and planting Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, this is our identity. We are those who have been saved from God's judgment for our sin. And so our number one priority as a church will not be to help people think positively, will not be to serve this community, will not be to be a force for good. Those are all great things, and we hope to do them. Our number one priority will always be to live together in Christ and invite others into that relationship. That's why the church is so important. It's a new community that we're joined to in Christ. Two pastors in England wrote a book once. They planted lots of churches. This is the way they put it. By becoming a Christian, I belong to God and 
I belong to my brothers and sisters. It's not that I belong to God and then I make a decision to join a church. My being in Christ means being in Christ with others who are in Christ. This is my identity. This is our identity. If the church is the body of Christ, then we should not live as disembodied Christians. The church gives us a new community and a new identity. And so Loudon Valley Baptist Church, here we are. Our first service is almost in the books. Lord willing, there will be many more. So as we begin this adventure, let's pay attention to these first few words of Paul. Let's take them to heart. Let's remember that we will only grow and mature as a church as we are rooted in God's word. Let's rejoice in the reality that we are saints because of the amazing mercy God has shown us in Christ. Let's not forget that as Christians, we have a new identity. We are in Christ. And let's embrace one another with all our faults, with all our weaknesses, as our gospel community. A dim preview of heaven, where we will be presented together to our Savior as his holy, beautiful bride. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you that you have not left us in our sin, but you've called us out of darkness and made us alive in Christ. So as we begin this new church, we cry out to you for unity and faith. We need your help. Thank you that you have given us every blessing in Christ like we'll talk about next week. So we pray that you would be at work in our midst. Give us joy. Give us patience with one another. Give us a grand vision of our new identity the purpose of this church. Lord, we pray that you would give us the desire to see you save sinners through Christ and unite them to you along with us. We pray that by your will, you would do that here in Percival through us. So Lord, protect Loudoun Valley Baptist Church from division. Protect us from the attack of Satan who would seek to distract us and harm us. Fill us with your spirit. Preserve us until you return, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.